Hi, we're the ladies of LifeSight, and we're so glad you're here. We're ladies simply navigating the challenges and triumphs of this modern culture as moms, wives, sisters, and daughters. Join us each week as we discuss the raw questions and situations that we face every day from our unique perspectives. So grab your cup of coffee, tea, or beverage of choice, and let's dive into this week's episode. Okay, guys, welcome to this episode of Ladies of LifeSite. I'm Rebecca, and today I'm a little bit boring with just a huge glass of water to drink during our conversation, but I hope you all have something yummy or even just a cup of water to enjoy. I know Claire is always helping us to remember to drink our water and take our vitamins, so there's nothing wrong with wrong with water. <laughs> but um, we're going to dive into this really great discussion this week. Um, I think that Maddie shared last week that we were going to have an episode specifically about aborted fetal cells and vaccines, but we kind of all decided we wanted to sneak in this episode with this guest today. So I'm really excited that we get to have one of our journalists on this episode, Dorothy Cummings McLean. She hails from Scotland and is just an awesome pro-life warrior. Dorothy and I actually share a work anniversary. We started on the same day along with Doug Mainwaring um, almost four years ago this coming May. So thanks for joining us today, Dorothy. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Um, So today we're going to chat with Dorothy just about her experiences in the pro-life movement. And then we're also going to hear a little bit about what it's been like to navigate COVID in Scotland. Um, Saturday was the one year anniversary of two weeks to flatten the curve. So um, I'm sure we've all uh, had a a lot of experiences in the last year. So to start us off, Dorothy, can you just tell us a little bit of your story? Like, how did you join the pro-life movement? Um, and, And just a little bit of background about that. Yes. So originally I'm from Toronto and I went to Loretta Wabby Secondary School in Toronto, uh, which is an all girls Catholic school. And I met in my final year there, which (laughs) was grade 13. So we had, we had uh, uh, 13 grades uh, back then. We now have 12. Uh, But at any rate, I was in grade 13, I think. And I met somebody who belonged to the student pro-life movement in Toronto. And she invited me to come with her to demonstration outside the Bay Street Center for Birth Control, which I think also, I think it did referrals. I'm trying to remember, this is many years ago. Uh, and that, that was really how I started the pro-life movement, uh, in the pro-life movement. At the time, there were no bubble zones uh, around either the, uh, well, anywhere. There were no bubble zones in Toronto. So my friends and I used to, after, after classes, you know, we would we'd either have a meeting on Fridays or we would go out and pick it. We would pick it and uh, sometimes we supported or were part of Operation Rescue. That's awesome. I love that story. You know, it's bizarre, but I was, as you know, LifeSite sprang from Campaign Life Coalition in Toronto. And Campaign Life uh, Toronto used to be in the old Mission Press building, we call it the old Mission Press building and near Dundas Street or in or on. I can't, I think it was on Dundas uh, near Shooter. And uh, so, yes, I was in that building before John Henry was. 
but uh, but I, I I met Steve. I don't think Steve remembers meeting me. Uh, I may have changed a lot more than Steve has. <laughs> well, you know, as a young eighteen year old and and then meeting Steve at that age, so you have uh, grown up a lot. <laughs> Indeed, yes. I, I, I current, well, that, one of the last times I was at Campaign Life Coalition, I bumped into somebody. I said, "Oh yes, I met her before," but actually, no, I met her mother. <laughs> um, <laughs> she's just the same age as her mother was back then. So that's funny. Oh, very cool. I love that. Can you maybe share like one story that sticks out to you um, that's really made an impact on your life or made you want to become a journalist and and fight, you know, for the pro-life movement through your keyboard? This is going to sound crazy, but the the first uh, the first pro-life journalism I ever did was for Father Alphonse de Valk. He, he may have been the editor of the interim back then, or maybe he already had Catholic insight. I'm not sure. But I went undercover to basically at the age of 18 to a women's uh, a women's ordination uh, conference. That was certainly exciting and a bit weird. I remember that, uh, you know, at, at this at, at this this was in the in the late oh yeah this was 19 about in the early 1990s and there was uh some sort of half christian half pagan rituals going on uh during this uh, women's ordination conference and i reported on it for for father deval or i guess i either wrote the article or i wrote notes for it and uh i found it both i found it exciting and sad both at the same time that sounds like a really hard entrance into uh, journalism i think being in the pro-life movement when you're only 18 is hard in itself because this was Toronto. So being involved in activism that touches on such a personal part of life does not make you friends, does not make you popular in Canada, to, to put it mildly. So when you're 18 and you're on the street and people are screaming obscenities at you, you know, and at my high school, people, well, grownups didn't use language like that around kids. So having people scream obscenities at you, having, you know, men pass by and make comments about you getting pregnant one day, you know, having crazy men yelling about if boys could get pregnant, there'd be a, a clinic in St. John's, right, which was a, a reference to the priest abuse crisis uh, that, you know, there, there was already reference to that in the 1980s because of, a, of an orphanage in Newfoundland. So, so it's a pretty, it's a Baptism by fire, I think, being a teenager in the pro-life movement, and especially back then in Toronto. Also, having your friends being dragged down the stairs by police officers and thrown in the back of paddy wagons, that was also, that was very much part of the the 1980s, 1990s pro-life movement. Uh, Teenagers and grown-ups and priests still being dragged down clinic stairs and thrown into police wagons and, and taken to this police station. That's what I want to hear more about, Dorothy, are some of your Operation Rescue kind of stories, because I know maybe some some of our, our listeners will probably be familiar with Red Rose. I'm under the impression that they were a lot more common kind of when you yes. were in the heat of the of the pro-life movement. So I'd really love to hear some, you know, one of your stories and, and encounters, because I'll be honest, I've been involved in the pro-life movement since college, since I was uh, a freshman in college, I was a sidewalk counselor. And like you said, that's really tough. It is, it's really hard. I remember the first time I came home from being a sidewalk counselor and I just cried. I went to adoration and I just sobbed um, because it was so difficult and so spiritually taxing. And having that experience, having been a sidewalk counselor, you know, it is tough, but taking, walking into the clinic, being inside and, and, you know, being arrested, that takes it to a whole nother level. Um, I, I'll be honest, 
I want to say that I would do that, but I don't know that I have the spiritual or emotional strength for it. So, you know, can you share with our listeners maybe one of those more vivid experiences or memories? Well, I was only ever arrested once myself. I love that it only, only once. <laughs> you have to understand the context. It's the pro-life movement in Toronto. Uh, 1989, 1990, 1991, 1991, 1992. Was in, was in town. We kids, I guess, heard about it. We wanted to support Operation Rescue, um, and I, I certainly did. So on one uh, feast of the Holy Innocence, I got up super early in the morning so my parents couldn't find out. Um, <laughs> yeah, my parents were not particularly happy with my my radical activities. At any rate, um, I snuck out to go in and. Um, just support Operation Rescue outside a clinic, shall we say, uh, an unprivileged part of Toronto. Uh, but when we got there, we found that there were pro-abortion people uh, had already got to the clinic first, and they were standing from the doors, and they just kind of yelled and jeered and sang their songs because they thought they had, you know, really pulled a fast one on us. But they were such a mob that nobody was going to go into that clinic that day. The Operation Rescue people just went ahead and chained themselves in front of the pro-abortion activists. So it was very alarming, um, I must say, because you had the two groups very close together. And beside me, an elderly woman was being slowly throttled with her scarf by one of the pro-abortion people behind her. And I was so horrified by that because I had never seen violence at one of these. I've heard a lot of violent language from pro-abortion activists and people you know, passing us on the street, but I had never actually seen violence like that. So I was, I was so stunned and shocked. And I'm not, I, I can't even remember what happened. Uh, this was many years ago. But one of the things that struck me most, most strongly was that every time one of the Operation Rescue people got pulled away by the police, they would go limp and the police would have to, you know, they would use up two police officers, would have to pick them up and throw them in the back of, uh, of the police van. I saw a priest sit down in that space and the police picked him up. And I was a very pious teenager. And so seeing the police manhandle uh, the, uh, a, uh, a priest, just really shocked me. And so I went and sat in his place because I thought, well, if a priest, you know, if, if, if a priest would do that, then I'm going to do that because they're not going to throw a priest, our priest into a van and not throw me. So I sat there and they, and one said, are you going to walk in the van or do we have to pick you up? <laughs> and I said, well, I guess you're going to have to pick me up. So they picked me up and they threw me in the back of the van. Uh, and when they had thrown uh, enough people in the back of the van, uh, it went off. Uh, to the police station and we all sang Irish songs in the back, I recall. Yeah, we were processed and then all the women were put into one big uh, one big uh, holding cell and uh, the men were put in the holding cell behind us. And then we sang hymns until uh, people who had been, uh, who were in a holding cell or, or cells farther down the police station started yelling at us to shut up. <laughs> I think we prayed the Lord's Prayer and then that was, that was it. That was our 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 singing and praying session and then there was massive boredom for the next four hours i can't even imagine i cannot even imagine no. dorothy you touched on something that um you know i i know we're talking about kind of your your time in the pro-life movement but um you know you said you were a very pious teenager and, and talking about the priests that were involved in the movement and you've kind of now stepped into and and really helped 
push some of the reporting on the Vatican. You know, I know you that you spent, was it maybe a week or 10 days down in Rome last year? But, or I guess it must have been two years ago before the lockdown. I was there in October for a month. Wow, that's yeah. crazy. I just, I have so much respect for the fact that not only are you an amazing journalist, but you were willing to go... I mean, effectively, you moved for a month to Rome. Um, yeah. and, and I love Rome dearly. I have Italian relatives. I, I like you, Dorothy. I speak Italian. One of these days, we'll just have to hop on a call and, and practice our Italian together. Pero adesso dobbiamo parlare in inglese. Anyways, I, I apologize. Um, but, you know, I, I'd love to hear about what it was like in that experience of just up and, you know, effectively moving to a different place for a month in order to report on what was going on at the Vatican. I think that that's, I, I, I'm just awestruck by that. It wasn't a terrible hardship, so don't be too awestruck. Essentially, what happened was uh, because of COVID, my husband's uh, job disappeared. But fortunately, uh, he was given compensation. And we decided that, okay, we were going to use this compensation to go to Rome. So we didn't go to Rome on LifeSite News' dime. We went to Rome on our own dime. And the idea was that I would report from Rome because it was a good place to be. And uh, he, in the meantime, would take Italian classes and uh, just go for walks and, uh, in, you know, uh, basically uh, take a break after he had a really rough three years. So uh, he went for walks and I worked from our the flat, uh, the apartment that we rented. And it was very interesting because it was uh, Italy was in a state of partial lockdown. Um, it was getting uh, more and more strict. I mean, they had it wasn't as strict as it had been, so it had opened up a bit. But but now they were starting to put curfews on the restaurants, and the restaurants were getting very nervous. A curfew on an Italian restaurant that already doesn't open until like seven or eight o'clock. <laughs> I can't even imagine. Well, they were very distressed uh, when, uh, for example, uh, the Roman restaurants had a curfew of six p.m. They haven't even opened for dinner service yet. My goodness. <laughs> it was pretty sad. It was very sad. But. Uh, but well, fortunately for us, we had a very interesting perspective on, on the city, I think, because it was uh, pretty well denuded of, of British tourists and American tourists. There were some German tourists. So those tourists, as were there, were, were Europeans who'd probably, you know, perhaps driven there. So I'd never seen Rome so empty of foreigners in my life. Foreigners meaning people like me. So, uh, but either the Italians were out. So uh, that was really nice. Uh, so it, it wasn't as sad as some of the drone videos we've seen of these absolutely beautiful but dead empty squares, which, you know, I don't think their their designers ever, ever thought of these squares as just being open, you know, uh, open and empty pieces of art for people to look at. But anyway, so there were, were enough crowds around to make it not frightening. Everybody had to wear masks outdoors. I don't do that here. So in Scotland, people don't wear masks outdoors. We wear masks on buses and we wear masks in the supermarket. Uh, so anywhere indoors-ish, but uh, we don't wear them out on the street. But in Italy, people would wear them out on the street and even while they were driving. So people were still very frightened last October. And I imagine, uh, they, they, I guess there's a, a kind of tension. Some people are really frightened. Some people are just really impatient with the lockdowns. It was an interesting mix. I can't even imagine. I know, um, like I mentioned, I have family in Italy and they're actually in, in Milan, which is where the, ah. the epicenter was for the outbreak in Italy, obviously. Um, and some of my cousins are nurses. And so it was, re I mean, they, they had, they carried the brunt of it on their shoulders. Um, so they sure. were, you know, in Milan, they were very cautious, um, for a while, but, um, because of that family, I, I do read and kind of stay abreast of the Italian news. And I was watching some of the government hearings and, uh, 
you know, discussions and, and hearings, you know, in that October time range, um, kind of uh, even early, earlier September, you know, hearing some of these Italians just fighting and saying, no, we cannot stay locked down. We need to, you know, we need to, to go back to life as normal. It was, it was very passionate. I, I can't imagine getting to be there. I'm sure it was a very uh, unique experience. It was different too. Cover, covering Vatican stories was much different from the way it was the year before. Uh, the year before, uh, because there was the, it was the synod, the synod on the Amazon. So in the synod on the Amazon, everything was very much laid on for us. Uh, it was amazing. You know, we had you know getting our ID was easy, and and uh, we would have these wonderful uh, sessions in the uh, Sala Stampa, that's the the, the press office uh, every day uh, with translation laid on and four different, at least four, maybe five different languages. Uh, marvelous. But when I was there, just, just because I was there, uh, I didn't have, uh, I didn't have, a, a, you know, it, things were not as easy for me. So I really had to scramble a bit more, finding out where the, the action was. And also uh, everything was in, uh, and there was, there was no translations. So I would just listen to everything very, very uh, assiduously in Italian. <laughs> I just concentrate as much as I could ever concentrate and make my notes and then uh, go home and see if I could find an English translation. <laughs> Dorothy, if there's anybody who could do it, it's you. You really strike me as one of those um, scrappy people in a very positive way, somebody who will just get it done and, and figure it out, um, even when it's, you know, when I, I know you speak Italian very well. It's tough. I can't imagine. Um, my Italian is far more conversational. I couldn't imagine sitting trying to report. It's hard enough to report in English um, to try to catch everything and make sure you've gotten all your notes written down. Theological Italian is different. Oh, and, 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 and the way bishops write things. Oh, my goodness gracious. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a, so I have an Italian tutor and I, I, I used to just bring him something that a bishop has written and he couldn't make heads or tails out of it. Oh my. Uh, so there's bishopese. So I, I, you know, English, English language bishopese, I find very easy to read, but I, I went to theology school for five years. Well, three, 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 and then two. And, uh, I, I learned to read encyclicals and how to do it properly. But reading Italian bishops' letters is, is really uh, a challenge, I must say. Oh, I can't imagine. So, Dorothy, before we have, before I kind of ask you or, or we have you talk about what's going on in Scotland, because don't get me wrong, I really want to hear about that. I would love to know, what was it like in Rome, like when it's locked down? Going to, did you still get to go to coffee shops? Did you still get to go to, yes, you know, grab gelato? Because, like, to me, that's one of my favorite things being in Rome is just popping into the cafe, grabbing an espresso or a cappuccino, um, and, and just, I don't know, mm-hmm. being there, sitting sitting on a square, sitting on a, you know, yeah. on, a, on a church stair and just soaking up Rome. Um, so before we let you go, I'd love to hear, like, the the daily life um, when it was locked down in Rome? Well, Matt, there was still mass. That was not at all a problem. Um, and we live very close to uh, where we usually go to mass in Rome. So to, to put this into perspective, uh, I'm only a two and a half hour flight from, from Rome. And uh, so I've been, I've been to Italy maybe seven times, maybe eight in the past 10 years. So uh, for for people who live in Britain, it's very easy to get there. So we would go to Mass. Mass was still there, uh, was still open to everybody, and that would be very nice. And we would go to a corner uh, cafe bar. So yes, you get your coffee in a bar, <laughs> essentially. Uh, and we'd stand at the counter, and we'd have our cappuccino, and we'd have our, you know, cornetto, so our, 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 our Italian croissant of the day. 
And you just stand at the counter, of course, and uh, you have your cappuccino. So we would have our cappuccino and we'd eat our Cornetto and that was our major, our big morning treat. Uh, and then uh, I would get started on work and uh, he, my husband would uh, go for a walk or, or whatever he was doing that day. Or he would go to his class. Yes, there were, there were days in which uh, when he had his class, we would, go, we would do the Cornetto and coffee routine. Uh, at the at the cafe bar nearest his language school, so that was really great. I would try to make time for lunch. We we have a number of, of friends, uh, expats generally, uh, who live in Rome, and so I, we would try to have lunch with friends, and we could do that in restaurants. Absolutely. Uh, there was there's a kind of a temperature gun, so you would have to shoot yourself in the head, bizarrely enough, with a thermometer. <laughs> I don't know how to describe it. No, that's perfect. That's exactly what they look like. I know exactly what you're talking about. They're like little temperature guns. Um. Yeah, you get shot in the head, and so it measured your temperature. And if it, it was it was delightfully simple back then because this is long before vaccines. So we managed to get to Rome before they started testing people. So that was good. So so with with uh, PCP tests. So basically, all that we had to put up with was having our being shot in the head with the <laughs> with the thermometer gun, right? The laser. <laughs> yeah, I you know maybe in in ten years we'll regret all this being shot in the head. But at any rate, at the time it was just it was just fine. It was fine. So we saw friends, and we would have we would have our our lunches with friends and friends of friends, people we didn't know before, and we really loved that. In terms of tourism, the there wasn't a, the people. Some museums were open, others weren't. Uh, I didn't go to any, but uh, my husband did, and he said they were really quite empty, just not a lot of tourists at all. And really, yeah. And I, I managed to go for some walks, uh, and uh, I would just I would just kind of marvel. At how few foreign, uh, few non-Italians there were in the streets. Well, it was a bit strange. It was a bit strange. It, it was beautiful as always, as always. It was it's beautiful, and it was even nice in a way to see it being so Italian. But on the other hand, there was a definite feeling that something was wrong. And uh, again, uh, I was working very hard. I had some very big stories. For example, the unfortunate growth of the pro-abortion movement in Poland. The big demonstrations in in Poland kicked off while I was in Rome. So, so I wasn't even thinking about. Rome, half the time, uh, half my head was in Poland. I'm just going to switch gears here for a second, because we know you live in Scotland, but how did you end up in Scotland? Cause then, and then we'd love to talk about life in Scotland, because the UK has crazy rules and has just gone through another lockdown. Um, so we'd love to hear about that. My husband is a Scot, and I came to Scotland on holiday um, in 2008. Eight and uh, I, I had from friends here, and I was going to be up with my friends, and I needed a place to stay, and that my husband had room where he was, or my now husband, and he suggested that I, I, you know, stay in the spare room, and I asked my mother, and my mother was like, "You're in your 30s, you don't have to ask permission." <laughs> but at any rate, uh, we met. Uh, he 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 met me in the um, in the uh, bus station, and I thought, you know, oh, we're going to be just friends, just friends. But, you know, uh, we after a week, I just thought, oh, this is such a great guy. And uh, he asked me to, he asked uh, me to think about marrying him. So so we got sort of pre-engaged after 10 days. Wow. I should stress, though, that that we had emailed a lot. So, you know, he had he had read things I'd written on the Internet and and stuff. So so we we had definitely corresponded for you know, nine months or so before we met. That's incredible. Yeah, but it's very 21st century. I just love that you ask your mother permission. <laughs> oh, that's the part you find incredible? Yes. I got a, I got a marriage proposal in 10 days and you're like, oh, you have to 
I know, Claire. I'm over here thinking, whoa, 10 days. I mean, my husband said I love you like after a couple of dates. And I was like, um, give me a couple months and we'll talk about it. Like, <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't know about that one. So, yeah, the 10 days. And in our case, we were pretty old. So I won't say how old, but we were pretty old. So I think that the attitude was we know what we want. We know what we don't want. We know what we're called to when we... Well, at any rate, we definitely felt a call. We felt, oh, gosh, this is God's will for us. But we felt it the way that you feel it when you're over 35, not the way you feel it when you're 15. So, you know, so yeah. it, it all worked out. I love that. That's awesome. So what's what's Scotland been like for you the last year? It's been a challenge because the, the lockdown rules change all the time. And I think Scotland has as strict as our has until poor old parts of Italy got put in the um, in the Zona Rosa and the, the red zone again. But the, but Scotland has had a very strict lockdown since Boxing Day. And so one of the things that they've done and uh, people have gone to court against and good for them is uh, they ban public worship like at all. Like, no, there is no public worship. So basically, public worship was driven underground. Not that I know anything about it. Wow, that's crazy, because at least here in the States, that's something that most, not all, um, but most governments haven't banned. A lot of our bishops have shut down masses. But the government's kind of tried to stay away from banning public worship. I, I, I can't imagine the government thinking it has being so brass that it has such authority to ban public worship. Yeah, but they've done it before. I mean, Scotland, the history of Scotland uh, is a very old one. And when usually, well, I shouldn't say usually, I think it's happened about twice. But basically Catholicism, for example, was, uh, well, was de facto banned after the Protestant Reformation in Scotland. And in fact, Presbyterianism was so deeply embedded in the culture, uh, and I stress was, because we're very much in a post-Christian situation in, in Scotland today. But uh, but Presbyterian was so strong and the anti-Catholic uh, feeling was so strong that a, a generation ago, two, well, I should say two, until about the 1950s, um, people still had to work on Christmas Day. This was not a Catholic-friendly country until maybe the 19, 1990, because, you know, Catholicism was driven underground. We know what to do. <laughs> Anybody listening to this in Scotland, I mean, the first thing they're going to say is, well, it's not the same thing because all public worship was, was suspended. And that's true. But again, Scotland has become a very sec secular place. So uh, I wouldn't say that the Presbyterianism or the Church of Scotland or or Protestantism was the was was anymore the de facto national religion of Scotland. Oh, and another thing I could argue is that percentage wise, I think more Catholics go to uh, regular uh, Sunday worship than any other group in Scotland, and we're we are only fifteen percent of the population. So have I mean obviously you said that there's uh, some underground stuff happening that you know nothing about, but is there any like protests happening or are people just kind of figuring out ways? ways around it to um to ensure that they're there have been anti there have been uh, a big anti-lockdown protests however many there may have been they have not been as well publicized as uh the, the ones down in london where the police have really right. behaved in, a, in a, a violent and frightening fashion here there i think it's been a more low-key more low-key protest but i think um i think in terms of 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 people of faith I think generally they don't want attention drawn to themselves. Because I know, you know, Jim and, and Lisa were in um, California last summer dealing with, you know, a lot of this, the, the churches and pastors there that were 
basically saying, you know, we're going to meet anyways. Um, so it's kind of interesting to hear kind of the difference between people's responses. It depends on, on, on what you want to do. So so there are people who have indeed uh, gone to court to say, listen, you, you can't just stop people from public worship. Uh, it's, it's their right. It's human right. It's a European, it's in the, I think, in the court, European Code of Human Rights. Uh, you you can't you can't just tell people they they're not allowed to to um, practice their religion, and uh, Christians are are very adamant that meeting together as the ecclesia is an important part of our religion, and it's particularly important for Catholics who have you know we are very incarnational we need the sacraments some of us have managed to find the sacraments, so that's good. But again, uh, it's not something that we have been bringing a heck of a lot of attention to because uh, I think uh, being able to receive the sacraments is more important than making a, you know, a protesting that we can't get the sacraments, if you see what right. I mean. And again, yeah. it's, part of, it's part of the history of the British Isles. Uh, Ireland had the mass rocks, so during the penal times, people would just meet at a special place and uh, mass would be set. And in Scotland, there were people called heather priests, although I think I can't remember whether they were called heather priests because mass was in the heather or because they were hiding in the heather. I mean, I never thought I would I would live to see the day that I lived in in the United Kingdom and and mass would be driven underground again. People would argue it's not the same thing because it's a pandemic. It's not uh, it's it's not religious persecution per se, but <laughs> the effect is the same. Well, absolutely. And, you know, if it's I feel like if it's targeting a certain group and I, I don't know, you know, so this would be a question for you, you know, or I wouldn't say it's yeah. targeting. I'd say it's just it's just ignorance, complete yeah. ignorance, because a religion means so little to the ruling classes today that mm-hmm. they don't understand. They don't get it. Like, for example, here's a great thing of not getting it. Originally, the Scottish government said that people would be allowed to go to public worship again the day after Easter Sunday, the <laughs> day after Easter Sunday. <laughs> Whose vote are they trying to get here? Because that's madness. So I think somebody at some point explained to them that, you know, again, the religious ignorance uh, uh, is is just staggering. But I think if somebody eventually explained to them that Easter Sunday itself is the holiest day of the Christian year, and therefore to tell everybody they can't have public worship until that's over, is that looks like oppression. I'm not sure it's oppression. I think it's stupidity. Or it's like, oh, we've got to make sure, oh, there's going to be a maximum number of people, you know, maximum number of people go to church on Easter Sunday. So we better stop that from happening. Well, no, that's not acceptable. That's yeah. not acceptable. And another reason why it's not acceptable, and I'm very passionate about this, because I had to clean the pews myself. We, we were socially distancing in the churches. People were obeying. They very much so were obeying the um, the maximum number of people, which you know got smaller and smaller. And there was no evidence that anybody got sick in Scotland from a socially distanced, super you know hygienic mass. There is no evidence that any anybody got sick from that and they still canceled it. And it's like, how dare you? You have no science. You talked about, you know, respect the science, follow the science. There was no science to the blanket ban on public worship in Scotland. None. That's amazing because, yeah, like you said, they, they're telling you to follow the science, yet they're um, they're not looking at all the numbers. No evidence at all. This is like uh, just, you know, and again... Is it oppression? Is it stupidity? I don't know, but the effect is the same. And frankly, if you're going to, you know, well, it's it's like, uh, well, it's a bit like prohibition, isn't it? If you ban something that people just are not going to do without, then the circumstances in which they uh, refuse to go without are not necessarily going to be ideal. 
So we had very socially distanced masses in, you know, uh, when you weren't running a risk of a fine, let's uh, say. And by the way, oh, during the Reformation, Catholics got fined for going to mass <laughs> or having masses. Same thing now. We, we were all risking fines if, if, you know, by going to mass, if that actually happened, not that I know anything about it. And so those were not necessarily, you know, that might not necessarily be done in a, a, a socially distanced way. Yeah, because you're just meeting because you, you need to. And so you're meeting wherever you can. That's quite different. It feels very different, especially, you know, well, and I've mentioned before, you know, I'm in Missouri and um, our local government, at least at a state level, has never instituted any mask mandates. And the lockdown was not very strict and definitely no fines or or anything like that. So um, that's that's quite a different experience to um, to me. People have been worried about the amount of plastic in the oceans for, you know, quite a, well, uh, let me think. I, I mean, I started really noticing people were really worried about it. Uh, I guess five years ago, right? And so yeah. I tried. I thought, okay, they're right. You know, I I agree. The the Earth cannot take that much plastic. I mean, it doesn't go anywhere for a very long time, and uh, we keep churning it out. There are whole villages in China that make Christmas tree ornaments. Um, there's just too much plastic. We we're, we're on a finite planet, and we're making infinite amounts of plastic. So it makes sense to me not to have too much plastic. Well, all that worry about plastic went right out the window with these ghastly masks. Yeah. We get from China. So yep. this disease came from China. Um, so many people got sick because China, you know, didn't behave in a responsible fashion. Now China is importing a gazillion masks, which are ending up in the oceans. And everybody's just pretending that's not actually happening. One of the, one of the first things I did when, when, the, when the disease was almost upon us, so I remember this was last March, I looked online how to make your own mask because I very much believed that mask at the time because, you know, back last March, I was terrified. So I uh, wrote to my mom and I uh, and I sent her a link to a, uh, a pattern for making masks. So my mother made us two masks and sent them. So I have two made in Canada masks made from <laughs> cloth and uh, non uh, non woven material, and I wash them, right? Uh, and uh, you know, people who like masks and talk about masks and what are the best kind of masks are rather fond of the you know two ply cloth with the non woven material in the middle. And I wash them. So frankly, uh, I have not contributed, I'm happy to say, to the wealth of the Chinese Communist Party, nor have I caused mass to be thrown into the ocean because I've got these two ones that my mom made. Good for you, Dorothy. I love that. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that it was back at the beginning of, of COVID. One of the statements that you had during one of our all staff calls was um, that we need to panic early, panic often. Yeah, I did that. <laughs> yes, that was amazing. I definitely did that. Running away to my mom, please make me a mask. My mother has all these useful old old fashioned skills like uh, sewing and embroidery that I never got my my hands around really, let alone my mind. So hopefully when all this is over, well I don't know if I'll frame them, but you know I'll I'll explain <laughs> it to my my uh, great nieces and great nephews one day. You could always have um, either your mom or Claire embroider you know, some phrase on them so that they can be framed and very beautiful. Oh, well, that's a good idea. But you know what the weirdest <laughs> thing was? I walked into a bank wearing these masks last week and I was like, I cannot believe I have just walked into a bank wearing a mask. Just bonkers. And of course, the bank gets mad at you if you don't wear the mask in the bank. Well, 
I know there's oh, so much more we can talk about. Um, Dorothy, you have so many awesome, awesome conversations and stories to tell, but um, we're pretty close at time today. So I want to kind of wrap us up and just say thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you learned a little bit about one of our amazing journalists, and I hope that you get to leave this episode feeling really inspired to um, do more for the pro-life and movement and um save babies and save whales. So we would love to have you join us next week when we actually will be talking about aborted fetal cells and vaccines. We'll have Pamela Acker and then Claire Cretien here from LifeSite will join us for um, that conversation. So I'm really excited for you guys to hear that. I just want to remind you to subscribe to our email list so you can know when our next episode goes live. So you can subscribe to this email list in the description below or subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform. To contact us with any comments or or topics that you might want to hear discussed, please just email us at ladies at lifesitenews.com. And that email will be in the description as well. So we hope you guys have a wonderful week. And I can't wait for you to join us next time. Any last words, Dorothy? Thank you very much for having me on. It was fun. It's, it's always fun telling younger people about how it was in the old days when we were really tough, rugged pro-lifers getting dragged down the stairs and thrown into uh, police vans all the time. God bless you, lady. God bless you. That's amazing. And as they say in Top Gear, on that bombshell, we will bid adieu. God bless you all.